everyone. My name is Grant, and welcome to the history of the modern Middle East. Episode 1, The Rise of the Turks. The current borders of the modern Middle East were drawn up by European powers during World War I. In this agreement, the Allied powers were carving up the Ottoman Empire, at the time referred to as the Sick Man of Europe. Historians often portrayed the years between the Second Siege of Vienna in 1683 to the dissolution and carving up of the empire in 1922 as a long decline. But before the decline and eventual fall, the Ottomans had been a domineering power in the Middle East, North Africa, and Southeastern Europe. In fact, it is often argued that it was the Ottomans who were responsible for the age of exploration that resulted in the discovery and subsequent colonization of the Americas by Europeans. To understand how this came about, we need to go back and discover the roots of the Ottoman Empire. This means we need to go further east than modern-day Turkey. We need to go to Central Asia and explore the homeland of the Turks. The exact origins of the Turks is unknown. We know that they are from Central Asia, somewhere amongst all of the modern-day stands. We have similar issues with the Turks that we do with most Central Asian horse nomads. For most of their histories, they didn't have a written language. This means that what little we know of their ancient past today is passed down via oral tradition which historians tend to have a bias against. Oral traditions are fragile and subject to imperfect preservation. Studies have shown that humans have bad memories. We don't remember exactly what happened, even in our own lives. We only remember what we think is important, and that has a tendency to change over time. It's not uncommon for a person to tell the same story numerous times throughout their life, and for each time to be different. Details are added, retracted, or embellished, and different things are emphasized at different points in your life. And the things that get emphasized usually correlate to what the person telling the story thinks is important at that time. So in this, we see a rewriting of the past to fit present needs. Now, this isn't uncommon among modern historians. Revisionism in history is simply the reinterpretation of the past using the same old materials, along with newer information. What makes oral traditions problematic, however, is that we don't have the previous versions of the stories recorded, so we have no idea how the telling of the story has evolved, and therefore we don't always know how to treat them. With that in mind, it's not that we know nothing about this region before the introduction of writing, but what we do know does not come from the people themselves, but from outside observers. In particular, the perspectives we have on their ancient ancestors come from the Greeks, Persians, and Chinese. Agriculture began to spread in the Neolithic period. This led to the development of settled lifestyles, which allowed for population growth, which then resulted in the creation of civilizational institutions. However, this progress was limited in Central Asia, where agriculture was limited to the riverlands and oases. Because of this, raiding was a prominent feature of life in Central Asia. Along with raiding and trading, the nomadic peoples also adopted animal grazing, the ancient Greeks referred to these people as the Scythians, with some of the earliest descriptions of them being found in the works of Herodotus. This cultural group was widespread, reaching from the Danube all the way to Mongolia. They were described by the Greeks and Persians as being very warlike. Persian records referred to these people as the Sakamen, and how they did not let water touch them. They would instead use steam baths for cleaning themselves. 
It was during the time of the Scythians that what we think of as the nomadic warrior on horseback was born. The composite bow that would later be used by the Mongols and other Central Asian peoples was first developed by these people. Physical prowess was of the utmost importance. The most manly of men was someone who could assert their dominance over other men. The Greeks wrote of how the Scythians would drink the blood of their first victim, collected scalps, and brought the heads of the men they killed to their leaders. And of course, the tactics of the horse archer were developed by these ancestors. The Achaemenid Empire of Iran attempted to conquer Central Asia. It introduced coinage, postal, and writing systems to the region. Alexander the Great would make the same attempt, and like the Persians before him, he too failed. But not without leaving a piece of themselves behind. Greek settlers created cities and culture, and especially art, which created a style often referred to as Greco-Buddhist. This is why you can sometimes find statues of Buddha in Central Asia that are in Greek poses. The Chinese wrote about another potential ancestor of the Turks, the Xiongnu, in the 3rd century BCE. The Xiongnu were widely regarded as one of the ancestors of both the Turks and the Mongols, and they created the first empires in the steppes of Central Asia. The Chinese first wrote about the Xiongnu during the Warring States period, and from this time we see the beginning of a common theme in Chinese history until the Mongol conquests. The Chinese will constantly have to deal with nomadic, horse-riding steppe peoples, and will be at war with them on and off for over a millennia. The Xiongnu created their empire in response to Chinese expansion into the steppe lands. They were a confederation of tribes, and like most tribal societies, the Xiongnu were probably multi-ethnic in nature, united more by language than any modern concept of race or ethnicity. Some historians theorize that the elite clans of the Xiongnu were probably the ones who began adopting an identity that we would recognize as Turkish. However, this is disputed because the earliest people with a clearly Turkish identity first appeared on the periphery of the late Xiongnu Empire. People associated with this early Turkish group also spread out west, some believe that they may have been a subgroup within the larger group that the Europeans referred to as the Huns. And like the Mongols after them, they didn't so much conquer settled peoples as much as they extracted tribute from them. No empire lasts forever. The Xiongnu's empire would be gradually chipped away at from without and within. The Chinese began a concerted effort to destroy the Xiongnu in the 2nd century BCE. Their empire also grew weak from internal struggles. A series of succession wars began in 60 BCE. During this time, the Chinese, which until a century earlier had been paying them tribute, now demanded suzerainty over the Xiongnu. Their leaders agreed, and over the succeeding years, the Xiongnu became dependent upon subsidies from the Chinese. By the 3rd century CE, the Xiongnu had been overshadowed by their successors. One of these successor states was the Ruran Empire, who were possibly the same group the Europeans referred to as the Avars. It was one of the subject tribes of the Ruran that first bore the name Turk in its tribal identity. Chinese sources trace the history of the Turks back to about 500 families, each containing the surname Ashina. They settled in the Ruran Empire and were known for ironworking. When the Ruran fell, the Ashina took control. The first state to bear the name Turk in it was founded in 552 CE. Just like their predecessors, the Turks extracted tribute from their neighbors, but they also traded beyond their borders. Multiple Turkish empires would be founded and succeed each other, such as the Uyghurs from 744 to 840 and the Khazars from 630 to 965. Just like all their predecessors, the Turks extracted tribute from the Chinese, coinciding with China's periods of reunification. Just as the Chinese would have a long history of fighting horse nomads along their frontiers, the Turks would have a long history of resisting and succumbing to the lifestyles of Chinese elites. The Chinese felt a strong need to pacify the Turks. So along with their regular tribute, 
They sent extravagant gifts and married off princesses to their leaders. The Tang Dynasty of China would use one group of Turks to create a buffer zone against another. The Turks eventually found themselves to be clients of China, and they would rebel against the Tang and refound a Turkish Empire in 709, restoring their own dominance. The Second Turkish Empire would be founded when a descendant of the Ashina clan, Ilterish, led the remnants of the Turks into a rebellion against the Tang. The Second Turkish Empire would see several decades of competent leadership. Their relationship with China would go back and forth between raiding and extracting tributes to military campaigns to prop up the Tang Dynasty during moments of weakness. They continued the long tradition of Central Asian empires, preferring to profit from a neighbor rather than conquer them. The Second Turk Empire would collapse in 734, when its leader, Bilge Kagan, was poisoned and they would be replaced in 744 by the Uyghurs. The Uyghur Empire was centered in what is today Mongolia. There was little interruption in the way that things were done between the Turkish peoples of Central Asia and China. The Uyghurs picked up where the Turkish Empire left off, with extracting tribute from China and occasionally helping whatever ruling dynasty there was put down rebellions. Unlike the Turkish Empire, which was more influenced by China, the Uyghurs were more culturally influenced by the Iranians. They built a capital city near modern-day Karakorum. It's not unheard of for nomads to build cities, but it still wasn't normal. The reason they had to build a city was because they were extracting so much wealth from China that they couldn't carry it around with them. So they needed a capital to store everything that they couldn't carry with them. This means they need structures to store the goods in. These structures needed people to guard them, these guards need goods and services provided for them if they are going to spend all their time protecting the stored wealth. When you acquire stuff that can't be carried around with you, it tends to accumulate more stuff to facilitate the preservation of the original stuff. The Uyghur Cognate would eventually be destroyed in 840 by the Kyrgyz, another Central Asian peoples. This defeat caused the Turks to migrate westward and for the people whom we refer to as the Mongols to take control of what is now Mongolia. The fall of the Uyghurs would have a negative impact on China. The Central Asian steppes was where the Chinese got their horses from. So the destruction of the Uyghur Empire by the Kyrgyz disrupted the supply chain of horses for China, which resulted in a significant increase in the price of horses. Their fall also weakened the Tang Dynasty, which suffered from revolts within a generation of the Uyghurs' destruction. There was quite a bit of religious diversity amongst the peoples of Central Asia. The most common religion practiced among the non-ruling classes were native religions, where they worshipped collections of ancestor gods. The creation of governments was closely linked to religious conversion of leaders. The legitimacy of their rulers was often associated with their ability to control certain spiritual sites. They were familiar with Zoroastrianism, Taoism, Buddhism, and by the 2nd century of the Common Era, Nestorian Christianity. Tasper Kagan of the Turkish Empire converted to Buddhism, which was considered a good religion to convert to for the sake of political neutrality. He used his resources to build Buddhist monasteries and translate Buddhist texts during his reign from 572 to 581. The Uyghurs practiced their traditional Central Asian cults along with Buddhism and Nestorian Christianity. However, the leaders commonly converted to Manichaeism. Manichaeism is a dualistic religion founded by the Iranian prophet Mani, who lived between 216 and 270 CE. This was the only time in history where Manichaeism was adopted as an official state religion. The Turks were one of numerous nomadic tribal groups that were hired by the Sassanid and Byzantine empires. 
They would fight for whoever offered them the better deal, be it in trade relations, territory, or just cash and other goods. A long war fought between the two empires left them both vulnerable to an attack from the south, allowing a new religion to rise. One of the defining features of the modern Middle East is the predominance of Islam. After the death of Muhammad in 632, his successors expanded across much of the Middle East. In 638, the Tang Emperor, Tai Tsung, received a message from the Shah of Persia, Yazgurd III. The Shah was asking the Emperor for aid in helping repel the Arab invaders. The Arabs would eventually make their first diplomatic contact with the Chinese in 651, under the rule of Caliph Uthman. Descendants of Yazgurd III continued petitioning the Tang court as late as 737 in hopes of getting Chinese help to drive out the Arabs from Persia, but this never came to fruition. After defeating the Persians, the Muslim expansion into Central Asia began in the early 700s, with the military campaigns of Qutbiyah ibn Muslim. The earliest exposure the Arabs had to the Turks were as slaves. The Arabs captured young Turkish boys and trained them for military service later becoming known as Mamluks, which we'll cover in more detail in a later episode. They would come into extensive use after the Abbasids came to power. The Abbasid Arabs saw the Turks as barbarians, just as the Romans saw the Germans. And similar to the Romans, the only use they saw for barbarians was as soldiers, and so the Abbasids imported Turkish slaves across the empire. They wanted soldiers and bodyguards that had no loyalties to any of their rivals, and at the time this worked, but they used them to fill the ranks of their armies, eventually coming to the point of dependency. By the mid-8th century, the Arabs had established military presence in Tukharistan, Transoxania, and Fargana. It was at this point that the Battle of Talas occurred between the Arab Muslims and the Chinese. It was a technical Arab victory, but nothing was truly decisive. As Islam expanded into Central Asia, it became more and more influential on the cultures and the peoples there. Political changes at the center of the caliphate would impact the lens of the Islam making its way into the land of the Turks. The Umayyad dynasty would be overthrown in 750 by the Abbasids, but they would not rule over the vast reaches of their empire directly. Local rule would pop up, with each region paying lip service to the caliph in Baghdad, but more or less operating on their own. In Iran, the Samanids would take power and govern the region of Transoxania. This gave the Islam of Central Asia a more Persian flavor. This would spread Islam further across Central Asia, also piercing the northern coast of the Black Sea, but to a much lesser extent. The Abbasids and the Samanids became dependent on military service of the Turks. The peoples of Central Asia usually converted to Islam on a small scale, either as individuals or as small groups. Independently, they joined the Persian military and rose through the ranks, often doing so as Mamluk slaves. In 961, the Emir Abd al-Malik I died, which set off a succession crisis in Persia. This crisis allowed for a group of Turks, known as the Ghaznavids, to take power in 977. The first Ghaznavid ruler, Sebuktajin, had been a Mamluk, before becoming a ruler of Persia. He and his clan had been given control of some territory by the Samanids, and they would use this territory as a base to grow their power. Under his son, Mahmud, the Ghaznavids would expand their control over eastern Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and parts of northern India. He populated his imperial staff with educated Persians, given their prior experience in governance. He paid for the creation of works of poetry, history, philosophy, and theology. And he paid for these projects by sacking Hindu temples, something for which he was very proud of. Another major group of Turks arose within the reign of the Samanids. A Turkish chieftain, Seljuk, converted to Islam in 956, shortly before the fall of the Samanids. 
Seljuk enrolled his clan as warriors for the Samanids and became indispensable, just as the Ghaznavids had. After the Ghaznavids took over Persia, the Seljuks would transfer their services to them. And just like the Ghaznavids, the Seljuks were granted territory within the empire to rule, from which they would expand their own power. Their power grew and grew until they came to blows with the Ghaznavids, defeating them and taking control of Khorasan in 1040. While eastern Persia was under the control of the Ghaznavids, western Persia, as well as Iraq, were under the control of the Buyids. The Buyids were propping up the Abbasids in Baghdad, but in doing so, they were really controlling them. The problem was, the Abbasids were Sunni Muslims, while the Buyids were Shia. By the time the Seljuks defeated the Ghaznavids in 1040, the Buyids had grown weak, and the Abbasids invited the Seljuks to overthrow them. They would do so in 1055, when they entered Baghdad. A marriage alliance was made between the Abbasids and the Seljuks, with the leader of the Seljuks becoming recognized as regent of the empire, acquiring the title of Sultan. The title of Sultan had been previously used by the Ghaznavids and the Buyids, but never in any official capacity. The title would be fully embraced by the Seljuks, being the first to inscribe the title on coins and other official items. The Seljuks would not stop their expansion with Baghdad. They went on to conquer much of the Ghaznavids' empire. In 1071, the Seljuks challenged the Byzantines near a town called Manzikert. The Byzantine emperor, Romanus Diogenes, was present at this battle. The Byzantines were defeated and the emperor captured. And after a peace settlement was made, the emperor was released. This battle was very important for two reasons. For one, it gave the Muslims their first permanent territory in Anatolia, which to this day is populated by Turkish-speaking Muslims. The second is that this battle would trigger a series of invasions of the Middle East by Christians. At this time, the Byzantines were using large numbers of foreign mercenaries from Western Europe, much of it being heavy cavalry. The Battle of Manzikert resulted in the utter obliteration of the Byzantine forces there, including the foreign mercenaries. Losing that many fighting men all at once was a heavy blow. The Emperor would need to find more troops to replace them. This is when the first call for Western Christians to come to the East was made, and this call would be used as justification for declarations made by the Church of Rome a quarter century later. By 1079, the Seljuks had conquered Syria and Palestine from the Fatimids, and a large portion of Anatolia from the Byzantines. They had reunited much of what the Abbasids had once controlled, while nominally paying lip service to the Caliph in Baghdad, but the true rulers of the empire were the Seljuk Sultans. However, the good times would not last for the Seljuks. In 1092, Sultan Malik Shah died, and his sons fought each other for control of the empire. It was during this period of weakness that in 1096, the Crusaders invaded the Levant to retake the Holy Land for Christendom. They would establish a series of feudal principalities based in Antioch, Edessa, Tripoli, and Jerusalem. While we're on the subject of the Crusades, I would like to go on a brief tangent on the historiography of this period. In the modern West, the Crusades are most often portrayed as an early form of European imperialism. This interpretation, however, lacks historical context. The lands the Christians were invading once belonged to the Byzantine Empire, which was majority Christian by the time the Muslims had conquered the lands in the 7th century. This is why I used the word retake earlier. It wasn't the first time Christians controlled this land. There's also the fact that a substantial amount of the population of the Holy Land at this time was still Christian, and were living in dimitude under Muslim rulers. So, from the perspective of the Crusaders, they were liberators, freeing Christians from hostile foreign occupiers. It should also be known that within the context of Islamic history, the Crusades are kind of a blip on the radar. The Levant was only occupied by the Crusaders for about a century, and even then it wasn't very much territory. 
just a sliver of land along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. To Muslim rulers living at the time, the Christians were just a minor nuisance. And all things considered, the land taken was more important to the Christians than it was to the Muslims. Jerusalem was the holiest site in Christianity, while it was only the third most important site in Islam. The real threat to the Islamic powers in the Middle East would come on horseback from further east. But for now, we'll get back to the main story. While the Christians occupied the Levant, the Seljuks were fighting each other. A Turkish officer, Zangi, captured the city of Mosul and built up his own Muslim state in northern Mesopotamia. His son, Nur al-Din, would capture Damascus in 1154 and be the first Muslim ruler to seriously challenge the Crusaders. Egypt was tottering under the weakened Fatimid Empire. A Kurdish officer, known to the West as Saladin, was sent by Nur al-Din to assert control. Saladin abolished the Fatimid dynasty and restored nominal rule to the Abbasids, while professing lukewarm allegiance to Nur al-Din. Saladin would capture Syria in 1174 after Nur al-Din's death. He would then launch a jihad against the Crusaders in 1187. By the time of Saladin's death in 1193, he had captured Jerusalem and expelled most of the Crusaders from the Levant. His empire in Egypt and Syria broke up after his death, which was the only thing that allowed the remaining Crusader states to hold on a little longer. While the Crusades were going on, the Turks firmed up their control of Anatolia by tribes migrating from Central Asia and Persia and settling into the former Byzantine lands. The Seljuk prince, Suleiman ibn Kutulmush, had been sent to organize the territory into a new province of the Abbasid Caliphate. But by the end of the 12th century, his successors had built up a strong monarchy with a capital in Konya, once known as Iconium. During this time, the Seljuk states in the east began to weaken from the constant conflict with enemies from within and without. Another steppe peoples, a subgroup of the Mongols, had arrived. In 1206, the Mongol prince Temujin united the Mongol tribes and took on the title of Genghis Khan. By 1218, he had Northeast Asia under his control and decided to turn westward. The Mongols occupied the lands of Central Asia, and in 1219, they crossed the Jahartas River into the land of Islam. By 1220, they had captured Bukhara, Samarkand, and Transoxania. They then crossed the Oxus and swept through Iran. Only the death of Genghis Khan in 1227 delayed the further conquest of Islamic lands. But by 1230, the Mongols began their push again into Muslim territory. By 1240, they had conquered western Iran, Georgia, Armenia, and northern Mesopotamia. In 1243, they defeated the forces of the Seljuk Sultan of Anatolia. In 1258, the Mongols converged on the city of Baghdad. It was here when the last Abbasid Caliph, Al-Mustasim, met his end. He and his family were put to death, ending five centuries of rule. The Great Library of Baghdad, known as the House of Wisdom, was destroyed by the Mongols. Legend says that they tossed so many books into the Tigris River that it turned black with ink. The Mongols seemed unstoppable, but in 1260, the most important battle you've probably never heard of took place. At Anjalut, the Egyptian Mamluks defeated the Mongols, preventing them from conquering Egypt and North Africa. The Mongol conquest of the Middle East devastated the region, upturning the old dynastic institutions. Baghdad had been the cultural and religious center of Islam for five centuries, but after its destruction, Egypt became the center. Egypt is the boundary line between the lands that were destroyed and those that weren't. It's one of the great what-ifs of history, what if the Mongols had been able to conquer Egypt and North Africa? Would they have continued their conquest into Western Europe the same way the Arabs did five centuries earlier? The Mongol conquest didn't just create a political crisis for the Islamic world. It also created a theological one. Until this point, the Muslims had been successful in all of their conquests, 
and no one else had been successful in attacking them. Sure, the Christians managed to occupy a strip of land for a hundred years, but at least they were fellow monotheists, a people of the book. The Mongols, on the other hand, weren't. They were pagans who managed to conquer true believers. Muslim rulers had seen their successes as proof that their religion was the right one. But what now? Some Muslims believe that the Mongols were a sign of the end of the world, or that God had abandoned them. But like all empires founded by nomadic horsemen, the Mongol Empire eventually broke up. The rulers who governed the Islamic parts of the empire ended up converting to Islam. These Mongol rulers, especially in Persia, ended up fostering cultural works within their domains. Details about their reign will be filled in in later episodes. In the east, the Turks had been devastated, being reduced in power after the Mongol invasions. But in the west, the Turks of Anatolia had retained some of their former power. As the post-Mongol rulers lost power, the Turks managed to rebound. One group of Turks in particular, founded by a leader named Osman, would grow. The descendants of Osman, known as the Ottomans, would be one of the biggest winners of the 13th century. The Seljuks had been weakened by Mongol invasions from the east, and the Byzantines had been weakened by the Venetians during the Fourth Crusade. The Ottomans ruled in an area between the two. The devastation the Mongols wrought in Central Asia drove nomadic tribes westward, many of whom settled in Anatolia. After the wars between the Seljuks, Mongols, and Byzantines, Asia Minor was in a wreck. Christians still lived in the no man's land between the Turks and the Byzantines, but they were left more or less defenseless. Sufism grew during this time, as Muslims were seeking some kind of spiritual answer to the Mongol Holocaust. These mystics roamed the land, many choosing to live a life of poverty and rely upon the charity of their fellow Muslims. They gained a reputation for being eccentrics, with the more successful ones having followers who would beat drums and chant. Imagine Hare Krishnas, if you will. They went from town to town, preaching and ranting to their fellow Muslims to fight the infidels. One of the more colorful Sufis was Kalandar, but many turned to another named Bektash, because he was more orthodox in his behavior, though it is said he had a disturbing intensity about him. But, unlike Kalandar, he didn't shout, so he was favored by the ulama. Osman I was born in 1258, the year the Mongols destroyed Baghdad. He was a member of a leading Ghazi family in Anatolia. His ancestors had been part of the Ghaznavid Empire, but fled to Anatolia during the Mongol conquests. His descendants, the Ottomans, would grow in power, absorbing other Ghazi tribes as they did. Sometimes this was done by military conquest, other times they outright bought the loyalties. Osman I would lead raids into Byzantine lands from his territory in Sogut. His successor, Orhan, expanded Ottoman territory northwest to the Dardanelles and east to Ankara. One of the biggest advantages that the Ottomans had over many of their Turkish contemporaries is that they had a series of long-lived rulers. For most Turkish dynasties, life was nasty, brutish, and short. But the Ottomans were lucky to have rulers who managed to live long lives. On top of that, their leaders tended to be competent as well. They also began to adopt a veneer of high civilization, including rituals and ceremonies that wouldn't have felt out of place in a Byzantine court. The Ottomans were invited multiple times by the Byzantines to cross the Straits into Europe. They were seeking support against their enemies, both internal and external. But in 1354, Orhan's armies crossed the Straits for the third time and occupied Gallipoli, and did not return to Anatolia. This was the beginning of the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans. Orhan's successor, Murad I, expanded Ottoman control of the Balkans, 
conquering Thrace, Macedonia, and Bulgaria. In 1389, they conquered Serbia, the last Christian-controlled kingdom in the Balkans. By this time, the Byzantines' only territory was the city of Constantinople itself and its immediate surroundings. In the last battle for the conquest of Serbia, Murad I was killed, and so was succeeded by his son, Bayezid I. Bayezid I had launched a program similar to that of the Abbasids. He had boys who had been captured from Christian Europe, brought to his palace, raised as Muslims, and trained as soldiers, similar to what had been done with the Mamluks. These captured Christians would be called Janissaries, which mean new troops. These troops led to the Bayezid becoming less dependent on his vassals, which would create a divide between the Turks of Anatolia. He began to divert his resources towards conquering other Turkish principalities instead of conquering Christians. Deposed emirs sought aid from Tamerlane, a conqueror who had been making a name for himself back in Central Asia. In 1402, Bayezid I and Tamerlane clashed near Ankara. Bayezid's vassals abandoned him, and so he was captured, and he would die in captivity. His four sons began to fight with each other over who would succeed their father as sultan. By 1413, one brother, Mehmet I, defeated his brothers and began to rebuild the empire. His eight-year reign was marked by wars against re-established Turkish emirs, the Venetians, and Christian vassals in the Balkans. He would be succeeded by Murad II in 1421, who attempted to expand further into Europe, but he was repelled by the Hungarians. In 1451, Murad II was succeeded by his son, Mehmet II. Mehmet II would do what no other Muslim ruler had ever done. On April 6th, 1453, he began a siege of Constantinople. Muslim rulers going as far back as Caliph Muawiyah of the Umayyads had tried to take Constantinople, and every time they failed. But Mehmet II's situation was different. By the time he took Constantinople, the city was all that was left of the Byzantine Empire. All of Anatolia, once populated by Greek-speaking Christians, was now filled with Turkish-speaking Muslims. The city was surrounded on all sides. There was nowhere to go, nowhere they could get reinforcements from. They were alone, and on May 29th, after 53 days of siege, the city fell. The Ottomans had better ships and better cannons than any previous besiegers. He broke open the walls and stormed the city, and it was pillaged for three days. And as the ultimate sign of conquest, the church of Hagia Sophia, one of the grandest churches in Christendom, was converted into a mosque, a common practice among Islamic conquerors. And just like that, the last vestiges of the Roman Empire, nearly a millennium after the fall of Rome itself, was gone. However, the golden age of the Ottoman Empire had just begun. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the history of the modern Middle East at gmail.com. You can also follow at Grant G. Hurst on Twitter, or you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history of the modern Middle East. If you want to know the sources used for this episode, you can go to the history of the modern Middle East.com and find the show notes for this episode. There you will also see a bibliography of sources used for this episode, along with maps and other visual aids. If you want to support this podcast, you can rate it and leave a review on iTunes. If you are so inclined, you can also give monetary support to the podcast on Patreon. Just look up History of the Modern Middle East on Patreon.com 
or you can go to historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com and click the Patreon tab, which will take you directly to the page where you can sign up to be a patron. Patrons have access to a number of rewards. If you are academically inclined, one of the rewards is a fully footnoted script used for this episode. Stay tuned to the next episode, where we'll be covering the golden age of the Ottoman Empire in Episode 2, Pax Ottomanica. Thanks for listening.